Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down into a single topic, ask a question, and unpack the rest. This week, we're asking how should startups prepare for a post-pandemic dip? Is the state of the market right now sad, or is it just sanity that we're seeing happening <laughs> finally. I'm joined by Alex Wilhelm, who has been following the gap forever. Alex, how are you and what the hell is going on? Well, I'm doing fine. The question is, how is the startup world doing? And we're going to approach that question kind of from the, the late stage and the early stage perspective through the lens of a changing public market and perhaps a changing private market. And to be our guide along the way, we have brought along one of, I would say, VC's leading lights in terms of data and late stage venture capital. We have Bessemer partner, Mary D'Onofrio. Mary, hello. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. We're doing tremendously well. And we want to start with something that's that's a little bit basic, but I think we'll set the ground for what's going on. So tell us a little bit about the Bessemer Cloud Index and how it came to be, because this is going to be a key thing we talk about on the show. And I want to make sure we're grounded in the data here. Yeah, certainly. So it was kind of the brainchild of, of Bessemer in partnership with NASDAQ. Uh, the purpose of it was to benchmark public cloud stocks as they moved from private to public over time. So it provides an operational and financial benchmark for the performance of the public cloud. And as we've seen recently, has, has traded off pretty materially, um, 30% since November, about 20% since the start of the year. But you know, it, it has a lot of the components that were COVID beneficiaries, the Zooms, DocuSigns, Cloudflares of the world. And so a lot of private companies use it as a benchmark for exit. Awesome. And I saw on your profile that you're a key architect of it, which just made me really curious of what your influence is in it and when you start to notice signals, because we notice them probably a little bit after the choices are made. On the key architect piece, I update it twice a year. Um, there is a methodology document that we have worked on to, to make it as objective as a measure as possible. Certain growth rate thresholds, certain cloud determinations, transaction okay. uses based pricing and, and stuff like that. And we did that in partnership with NASDAQ. But signals wise, you know, I look at it every day and today, uh, today alone, we're down about 5% in some, um, some stocks that we're really familiar with Okta, Shopify and the like are down 7%. We look at it month to month, day to day, and then obviously trying to see the, the overarching trends. But I think it's like any major index is, uh, everyone's looking at it together. And this one's particularly painful for me as an investor who focuses mostly on cloud software investing. <laughs> So obviously the reason we're talking about the cloud index, because it doesn't always come up on the show, is because it's giving us some really necessary signals of how the market is changing and really slumping. So Alex, walk us through the top line numbers of how it's performed this week and I guess just contextually over the past few months. Yeah. So if you look back to the last couple of months, the cloud index peaked out in November of last year. And this is why sentiment has changed kind of like I would say from December through to today. And that's why we're not talking about this. It has fallen far enough and long enough to actually seem different. And just to put that in very quick numerical terms, the cloud index topped out at 65 and a half points and is now down to less than 41. So more than a 30% decline, putting it deep into bear market territory. And I just want to say, Mary, it feels steep. It feels like we've seen a pretty rapid deceleration in the value of cloud stocks. So am I wrong to think that way? Is this a normal gyration or is something afoot? I think we're certainly saying that something's afoot. You know, obviously those the, the stock price of, of WCLD is, is impactful. But if you think about it in terms of actual market cap, it's even more striking. It went from close to three trillion now to 1.7 trillion of cloud market cap. And you think about all of that market cap loss, it's a massive, massive rotation out of cloud. 
and you know, I, I know we'll get into this over the course of this episode, but I think what we're seeing is the combination of, of rising interest rate expectations and obviously bond yields reopening after COVID, and then, you know, even some geopolitical effects more broadly. But all of that has had somewhat of a deleterious effect on cloud stocks. And I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and I certainly have to ask myself as a growth stage investor, is, is whether or not this is the normalized environment and this is the long-term future or not. Yeah, that was definitely going to be my next question because I have a little bit of like trust issues with all the ups and downs of the past pandemic. And I don't know how long something needs to be bad for it to be, I guess, actually bad or if it's just a dip. And I mean, obviously, if we all knew the answer, you probably wouldn't be here. (laughs) But that is something that's on my mind as someone who doesn't check the cloud index often. I I feel like I never know how much weight to give something, you know, every day versus like if it's bad for a week. Is that when we kind of call it? I think we we still have to see. But I do think that most people agree that the that stocks were overvalued in the past year or so. And we were seeing the benefit of market dynamics that we probably won't see in the future, like near zero percent interest rates, COVID tailwinds that propelled a lot of these cloud stocks, you know, facilitating remote work, staying at home. And and now we're seeing that all being unwound. If anything, I would probably posit that this is more normalized of an environment. And, you know, maybe there is a recovery long term, but back to the you know standard 50 times exit multiples, I think that's really difficult to sustain if you're valuing companies on the present value of their future cash flows. <laughs> which is a, a joke and kind of a meme inside the financial dweeb community, which is really how do you value companies? And if it's not the present value of their future cash flows, what do you measure them by? Hype? It's the question that we've been chewing on for a while. To answer Natasha's question, though, I, I would say that any week-to-week movement is pretty whatever. By the time we get to several weeks of one direction, I begin to pay attention okay. and I begin to, to, to tweet about it. And VCs often say like, yeah, but look at this. Look at this zoomed out chart. <laughs> All right. And then by the time it's several months into the sell off, which is where we are now, it does begin to feel like a reset or a, a return to a different set of norms. And that's that's kind of why I think we're here. But Natasha, it's a little bit broader than that. Other companies that didn't quite get the, the cloud bump, but didn't enjoy a pandemic bump like Peloton are struggling as well. We've seen quite a lot of chop there. So it does seem to be kind of essentially from the market's perspective that we're entering the post-COVID era, even if you are still locked down, even if you're still looking for a booster or you're currently sick with COVID, the market seems to be kind of moving on and uh, the reset's going to impact startups. The disconnect is really real. And I think Peloton specifically going through its past 10 days or so, I guess was like a narrative that I think a lot of people can resonate with. It was somewhat of like the perfect character to view the pandemic's rise at home, distributed fitness, hardware's comeback and seeing it pause or at least rethink its production rates gave a lot of people who maybe aren't as invested or tracking the cloud are now seeing the flashing signs in ways that they can't ignore. So Peloton is definitely one to keep watching. And there's a lot of drama that we could probably do a separate show on it. So I'll try and resist getting into the fact that their CEO is now being called on to resign, question mark? <laughs> yeah, it's not a not a popular moment to be Peloton. Essentially what happened was because no one could go to the gym, everyone bought bikes, Peloton couldn't make enough equipment. They were making so much money. Oh my gosh, Beyonce has a class. Up goes the stock price. And then it turns out that the market for very expensive exercise bikes is not everybody. And uh, growth has slowed down, production has stopped, and the stock price has lost most of its value. Um, my Peloton still works just as well now <laughs> as it did last year. But apparently now I'm a nerd for using one. I was cool six months ago. I don't I know. know how that flipped, but it seems to have been a reversion. I just want to take 
all of this and kind of apply it backwards. So, uh, Mary, you are a growth investor, which is why you and I have talked over the years. For folks out there who don't know, what's kind of the, the minimum scale for a company to be to kind of merit your attention versus the more early stage people at Bessemer? Yeah, I do Series B and beyond. So growth stage, cloud software. Um, and as we've seen and, and tied to even the um, conversation we'll have today, the definition of Series B has, has moved earlier and earlier. It was uh, what used to be five to 10 million of ARR is, was now three to five million of ARR over the past year or so. But, you know, it's moving out more and more over time. I have some data from a, uh, a particular uh, legal and accounting firm about the difference in ARR thresholds for startup rounds over the last couple of years that highlights what you're saying. So let's put you on the spot and be rude. <laughs> what is the company in the last couple of years that you have invested in that had the lowest amount of ARR? Like how, how low did you go in terms of like, all right, this is a series B, wink, wink. That's not exactly fair. I have not done a Series B in the past couple of years oh, that, I, okay. that I actually can remember. So uh, I guess I countered the rudeness. <laughs> That's so good. That was like the perfect response, she, Mary. She said, Stay I the do show Series forever. B's and above. And then she's, she's like, like, I haven't actually, done any Series B's. But that's that's the takeaway. Not in the past couple of years, no. Um, <laughs> unless, I, unless I'm completely brain dumping something that I that You're would fine. be embarrassing as well. <laughs> so so I, I guess that maybe the right question is, you know, as in the last year, we saw valuations expand and we saw ARR marks for different startup kind of like maturity marks, Series B, Series C, whatever, decline. How far did you see the market go? Because I've heard rumors that people were getting up to several hundred X ARR multiples for some deals. Uh, have you seen that bear out? And if you have, how much has that changed in the last couple of months? That certainly happened. And I think I could probably name five or 10 companies, just rattle them off that raised it 100x ARR. We've got time for it right now. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain trust. <laughs> but raising at 100x ARR multiples on sub 5 million of ARR and raising at you know sub 10% dilution. So you're, you're thinking you know, 500 posts and, and higher. And you know, even some companies raised it closer to 200 times ARR. I think, though, you know, it hasn't fully rolled through the private markets fulsomely yet. But in the past couple of weeks, I think that what you've seen is some of those decisions are being put into question as, you know, the primary impact that I'm seeing of the public market reset, especially as a growth investor, is that my expectations for exit multiple change. And if there's a step function decrease in what I'm expecting at exit, it really impacts how you can enter and maybe putting it in an example might make some sense. But like if you assume that a company is going to exit at 100 times and I enter at 100 times, I only need the company to grow at a 38% kegger for five years in order to make a 5x. That's not too much to ask. I'm going from 10 to 50 million of ARR, for example. But if I enter at 100x and I assume that I'm going to exit at a 25x, I need a company to grow from 10 to 250 million of ARR. And that's a kegger of 90% over five years. So as I'm modeling out the projections for a business and I'm modeling out what I think the future holds, it's a material difference. That really clicked for me. I mean, I, I say in the early stage world usually, so I don't ever hear people project that, I guess, ambitiously yet. But I'm wondering how hard it is to shake off the pandemic hype when you're in the late stage. Obviously, we just walked everyone through all these signals that things are changing. But when do you begin having these conversations, probably somewhat uncomfortable conversations with founders saying, hey, let's like reset a little bit and maybe not give you the valuation or the check that you think you deserve? 
Well, I think there are two factors. There's obviously the supply demand dynamic, and that is being propelled by the vast quantities of VC dollars that even though, you know, public markets are resetting, I I think we've all seen stats that over $600 billion went into venture last year. And in the private markets, unlike the public, I just need two parties to agree. If (laughs) if I buy one share of your company at a billion dollars, it's a unicorn, right? So so I do think that there are going to be some companies that continue to demand and, and can continue to get those premium multiples. But what I'm seeing is rounds taking longer, yeah. VCs asking more and more questions, doing the full set of diligence that candidly, some of these rounds didn't get even a year ago. It was, give me a term sheet in two days, give me a term sheet in, in a week, and I already have three other offers. But I think that founders are seeing that externally from investors that are looking at them net new, but also internally because most venture investors, myself included, are really advocating for capital efficiency and really advocating for preservation of cash. So I think founders are seeing it from both sides that help to to reset expectations. Is the preservation of cash and the maintenance of essentially a longer runway before cash reaches zero is that defensive, essentially allowing companies to grow into a, a revenue base that will allow them to raise more? Or is it more like weather the storm in the meantime, and then we'll see where market conditions are in six to nine months? I think it's both. And it okay. buys them optionality. On the runway side, it's certainly that the expectation that you're going to be able to raise at 50 to 100x or even a 2x step up to your last round in another year, that, that might be gone. And particularly for companies that might have raised a little bit ahead of their skis, like raised a little bit ahead of where they should be, that's a really bad signal to employees if you can't actually raise above or at somewhat of a step up of what you raised before. They're underwater in their equity. They don't feel motivated. Morale is down. Vitreous cycle in which we start losing people. And, And that can be a killer. But also, I think it's, you know, let's focus on running the experiments that we think are going to have the best impact on our business. We're not going to, to, you know, try every geographical expansion, product adjacency, et cetera. We're really going to be focused on narrowing in that set and being really, really operationally disciplined. I'm very proud of myself because <laughs> we're doing a little, we're doing a three views piece with, uh, with Marianne, our, our Friday co-host, about what might change this year. And I kind of wrote something similar to what you just said. So I'm going to award myself half of a gold star. Great job. Um, <laughs> I'm glad we're you. both. I, I think you're smart. So that makes me smart. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's very kind, Mary. This is why we had you on the show, because you're one of the nicest people at Venture. Tell me more about deals taking longer. Now, is this a growth stage thing? Is this happening across the entire spectrum? Because I know Bessemer has a pretty good lens into, I might say, the broader venture market and not just the late stage. Yeah. Deals taking longer, I think, is certainly happening at the growth stage. As I was trying to to articulate, I think we're turning over every rock and yeah. people aren't doing the deals in a week over Zoom without you know a deep level of diligence based just on, on revenue projections. It's let me meet the entire team. Let me meet you in person. Let music me- to my ears. Can I just say <laughs> that? I was feeling like I was being too like idealistic for asking more. <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, that that certainly was the case, especially for some really high flying deals that you knew were going to get taken off the table. So, and, and mind you, you know, when I say they're taking longer, I mean, they're going from a week to two to three weeks, which is a little bit just more normalized, which is still okay. really pretty, pretty quick, quick. all things yeah. considered. The impact on early stage, I think is actually that even though 
as a late stage investor, I do have to look at the public markets more directly as my next source of, of funding, you know, access to capital at the growth stages gets reduced over time. I actually think the impact on early stages that they have to be more price disciplined as well, because the expectations that me as a growth stage investor are, am going to de-risk their investment, mark them up by 2x and continue to fund the ongoing growth of the business is reduced in an environment in which I'm looking for more proof points. My yes. valuation is going to be deeper and longer and I'm being more disciplined on entry price. So how fast does the information translate? Because you know, one thing that we did notice was your quote uh, in the Wall Street Journal the other day, which essentially said, look, I am being more price disciplined because I know that the exit you know, valuations are changing. Totally makes sense to me. Things change, you react to it. But the early stage is kind of upstream from you, if you will. And so how long does it take for the public market information to hit you and then for your changes to kind of impact the folks writing kind of like large seed and series A checks? I think it will roll through. I, I think the impact on late stage private markets has almost already happened. You know, you see a, a 30% downturn in the sector you're investing in. That, that's enough to be a wake up call to a lot of growth stage investors who, who look at cloud, myself included. Yeah. The impact on early stage, I think is going to take a little bit longer because there are some people who really believe that the answer here is let's just invest earlier. And so you know, let's invest earlier could be an answer here, but I think the answer is let's invest earlier and also do so at more rational Series A prices. And I, I don't know if people get there in in a month, they might get there in six months as they yeah. see, you know, fewer and fewer of their companies come up for raising and, and having more trouble in the growth stage markets. But like I said, I do think that that this applies to maybe the median company. Best in class companies are going to still be able to raise at prices that they set and on terms that they really like. Yeah, that asterisk is important, I think. Like, I, I was talking to a VC a few weeks ago, and he was saying, like, because of all the mega funds out there, the kinds of companies that they need to invest in will be fine. But not every venture-backed company needs to have a mega billion-dollar outcome. And even though that feels kind of obvious now that I say it out loud, that is a conversation I keep returning to, which is, like, a lot of the startups that make sense for venture dollars are not going to look like Stripe or Plaid. They're going to look less absurdly big and billions. Superlative. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's like important to remember too, because as we're talking about this early stage and impact, Alex, one theme that we explored after the initial freeze of the pandemic is the assumption of an extension round or follow on round within months of that first raise. And I, in, in ed tech, at least, I'm seeing less within the same year yeah. funding rounds happening. Just to go back in time, what we saw was a lot of companies raised money you know, January through April of 2020. And then they came back and hit us up in August. Like, hey, by the way, we raised a bunch more or they just added an extension, essentially another five or 10 for growth because more capital was floating around in terms were relatively free and, and, and in their favor. So why not? And I, and I feel that. But Mary, so for the companies that did raise ahead of their skis that you mentioned earlier, these are the companies that I'm concerned about because I'm worried that they're not going to be able to grow into their valuation and raise another round. And they're going to end up in that kind of death spiral you mentioned. How many companies are there out there in the software space, if you will, cloud more generally, who are probably going to struggle to get their next round done just because they're a little bit mispriced compared to where the market is now? I think that number is really difficult to tell. Okay. I think it will become clearer over time which companies fall into which categories. It, it's difficult to give an exact number because one of the benefits to the vast number of dollars in venture and these high prices is that a lot of these companies have really strong balance sheets. And if they do have True. some capital efficiency and they do have a board that's that's preaching fiscal conservatism, you know, that that capital can actually keep them alive two, three years 
such that they actually can grow into those valuations. Um, I think it's really difficult to ascertain from the outside in, but I don't think that the grow at all cost model is going to be funded anymore. Yeah. Moving on to a little bit of like how this is impacting exits before SPACs really rose up as this way to like get to the public markets fast. And now that feels like, why would you ever want to go there? Why would you ever want to go faster? Stay private longer. And I think just like seeing that kind of go up and down in such a short period of time, again, is another signal that proves our point, which is like how this actually affects startups is that they're going to stay private longer yet again. And Alex, I know you've been tracking the IPO window. Are startups changing their minds on exits? Like talk to us through that environment a little bit. Okay. So the thing that really shook me up was how excited I was about the January IPO market and then how let down I've been by the January IPO market. Because Reddit and Via filed privately, I think it was last December, November. And then also we got a public filing from JustWorks and they were going to go out this month. JustWorks delayed its IPO via mark conditions, which is a fancy way of saying shit wasn't going well. And uh, we also haven't seen more filings from anyone else, let alone public filings from Reddit or Via. So my view is that the IPO window has closed at least to the point in which it's no longer attractive to go public. So companies that can wait will, which is different than saying you couldn't go out. It's more saying that the prices you might receive aren't where you want them to be. So Mary, I've been really harping about the unicorn backlog for a long time, about how there's nearly a thousand unicorns and we get like 25 public a year on a good year. And now there's no IPOs and we still have more unicorns being made. Am I, am I wrong to worry about that? Is this just a facet of where the private markets are? Like, do we clear the backlog eventually ever? I think the answer is probably no, that there were more unicorns minted that are companies that are going to be poised to have, you know, more than a billion dollar exits, kind of unicorn exits or IPO exits, partly because of the dynamics that we were talking about, really high multiples in terms of capital. Um, and, you know, when some of them are, are uh, pricing at ARR multiples of a hundred times, it's only $10 million ARR business. That's a, that's a long walk to a five, $10 billion exit, right? On the IPO window itself, I do think that I agree with you. It is relatively closed right now. It is interesting, though, to look at the lessons of last time the IPO window closed, which I think was around March or April of 2020. S&P sold off 30%. As we all remember, it actually happened on my birthday. So I really remember. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the first company, software company to go public was, was Zoom Info. And, and it did it with 100% growth. It did it with a bunch of long-term anchors on the IPO cover, Dragoneer, Fidelity, BlackRock, all spoke for, for up to $300 million of the offering. And the volatility went down pretty dramatically. The VIX was at 70. And then by the time it went public, it was in the high 20s. Right now, if you look at the VIX, the VIX is, the VIX is you know, uh, three times what it was you know, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. So I think that that is, is a measure that you know, right now IPO window is closed, but you're going to need a really stellar company to go public, to, to reopen it. Um, you know, the stripes, the canvas of the world, those companies, they could go. If Instacart wanted to go public, it could go. But absent that. <laughs> we're both like, we're both like Instacart. Are we sure? Actually, I would love Instacart to go public just so we can finally have some data. Yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Well, there you go. Okay, maybe I should stick to cloud, which is what I know. Um, I mean, but... like Stripe, everyone agrees, great business. Canva, everyone agrees, great business. Instacart's PR team. Yeah, so... <laughs> we were covering, so some, I forget how this came out, but someone broke the news that Instacart was going to grow like 10% last year. And I had a twofold take about this. One was good job on Instacart for not shrinking after such an explosive year of growth in 2020. And also 10% growth isn't very good. And guess which part of that their PR team didn't appreciate. So anyways, <laughs> my, my view is uh, that the touchier a PR team 
the more internal doubt there is about the company's current success. And this seems to bear out pretty well that the more like, ah, the company gets, the more they're worried about the narrative changing, you know, versus like the fundamental speaking for themselves. So Instacart, maybe, but Stripe and Canva for sure. I'm just okay, curious. Okay, so I guess oh. Instacart's not going to reopen the IPO window. Oh, we're no, a different no. one. <laughs> um, but, but, my, but my point still stands that like, I think it's a company like that that can reopen it. But I do think volatility needs to decrease. And what you see when that happens is a lot of investors and, and ones that, that the market respects um, coalescing behind the name. I want to end our conversation back in the early to mid-stage company world, which is, you know, right now for them, they still have a lot of optionality. It's a founder-friendly world. And we talk about that on the show at least three times a week. What happens if the power shifts back to VCs? Alex, I want to start with you. Like, what do you think is going to happen? And then we'll actually throw to the VC for her take. <laughs> Just looking at the historical record and not at all casting aspersions in any direction towards anyone. When the market is more founder friendly, we tend to see faster term sheets, easier terms for founders, and essentially better pricing. When investors have more power, there tends to be harsher terms inside of uh, term sheets, lower valuations, and so forth. I mean, like, when is the last time we heard the phrase ratchet? Like what? It was like 2008. Like there used to be a, 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 a plethora of ways that VCs could ensure that they made more money off of successful deals or, you know, de-risk their downside. Now we have uncapped safes. So you can really see how far things have, have changed. So my view is that generally speaking, if the market becomes a bit more investor friendly versus founder friendly, we'll see tighter terms, more limited valuation growth. And uh, generally speaking, greater accretion of uh, points of equity to VC firms over founders. Mary, what do you disagree with about that take? <laughs> Just for spice. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with everything that Alex said. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to see the resurgence of the ratchet. You know, I, I think uh, I, I don't think that's a standard term anymore. Wait, sorry, yeah. Can I actually ask for the definition of that? Because I've never heard that phrase in, I think, the context that you're talking about. I've heard it in other contexts. <laughs> sure. It's, it's basically a baked in return. So maybe at IPO, you're grossed up to 1.5 times your money or you're made whole on the money that you invested should there have been a down round, for example. It's, it's effectively a make whole or a actual baked in return um, that VCs write into term sheets to, to ensure that they you know, meet their costs of capital and wow. limit their downsides. Okay. And, and the result of this is if, for example, a company goes public at a lower valuation than expected and a VC has a ratchet, it can consume a vast majority of the return and leave very little bit left over for the founders and the employees. You're right, Natasha. You, we haven't heard someone say ratchet aside from as a pejorative in the more social context because it hasn't existed for a long time. But these used to be a thing back when they were like six VCs. They all lived on Sand Hill Road in small little huts. And uh, you had to make pilgrimages across the country and the world <laughs> to go meet them. And back when uh, investing in uh, early stage companies was seen as being risky, which it hasn't as of late. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the 100x ARR. You assume that everything's going to be a winner. Natasha, can I do one more tiny question before we go? Sure. Okay. So I was talking to uh, Matt Murphy Menlo about the changing world. And uh, I've known Matt forever. And he was saying how it does seem that there is a decreasing, maybe the death rate of startups, that more startups tend to do at least pretty good. And so your failure rate, the number you expect to go to zero in your portfolio has actually gone down. So risk has, in fact, actually decreased somewhat. Is that true? And uh, just really quickly, what impact does that have on how you make decisions about what companies you can take shots on? I don't know if that's actually true or that's a product of the funding environment. You know, okay. we're, we're there, when there's more money, 
you know, and, and VCs in particular being a little less choosy, you're just looking for a, a company that was, you know, done by a, a fancy seed series A investor that's growing well and capitals everywhere, you can fund a lot of companies. And I think more companies have been funded. There's been, especially for early stage investors, there's been fewer companies in their portfolio that haven't had a follow-on, I think probably than ever. I also think that given the relative cheapness of capital, what that means is that M&A environments have been hotter, right? You know, whether it's even public companies that have cheap capital where they can make acquisitions, Salesforce buying Slack or Zoom buying Five9, for example, or it's smaller companies doing tuck-in acquisitions, aqua hires, et cetera, that you know, still are fair exits for, for very, very early stage VCs um, and, and probably for the founders. I don't know if that exists in a normalized environment in which kind of access to capital is back at historic levels. I, I don't know enough to counter the claim, but not enough to validate it either. Yeah. I mean, I'm like Marianne, actually, in our three views of like how this impacts startups, she was talking about how something like headcount as a metric for success is no longer going to really work because obviously like the money can get you there, but is that showing your actual success as a company? So I guess like my takeaway at the end of this episode, after talking to all of you, is that things are going to get more formal across all stages. Like we're going to see due diligence even go from one week to two weeks. I'll accept that. And I think like the IPO window closing, surprisingly, will probably trickle down to early stage sooner than I realized companies are going to take runway and start using that word again. And I'm interested to see what that looks like, because it's obviously a really different environment in terms of learning lessons and contingency plans. Hopefully startups are more prepared for a potential like I don't want to say freeze, but like potential deflation. Alex, to use your Monday metaphor, <laughs> how are you kind of ending this episode feeling, Alex? Well, it's like I was standing by a punch bowl and the punch bowl kept like filling closer and closer to the brim. And then I took a long drink and I turned around and it was half gone. I'm like, whoa, what the hell just happened? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we're getting back to sanity, expensive sanity, but no longer ludicrously expensive. Uh, market conditions. So uh, this seems very reasonable to me. My 401k doesn't love it, Mary, but my net worth can stay flat for a while, I guess. It's fine. I, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it does feel like this year is not going to be 2020 part two. This is going to be 2022 part one, and that's going to be quite the change. Yeah. It's not sad. It's sanity. So that feels like a good note to leave it on. Mary, before we let you go, any parting words for the equity listeners or for us? No, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure uh, speaking with you both. So fun. Drop your Twitter handle, Mary, so people can follow you. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, I'm um, at MCA Denofrio. Perfect. We'll plug it in the show notes. Mary, thanks again for joining the show. Alex, always lovely to co-host with you. And you will see Equity back on the podcast stream on Friday.